Welcome to the Ad Watchers, a podcast brought to you by the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs. We're a team of attorneys with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the truthfulness and accuracy of national advertising campaigns. I'm Hal Hodes. And I'm Latoya Sutton. To make sure advertisers can back up what they're telling consumers, we don't just take ads at face value. We put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law is simple. It's the execution that's hard. Welcome back to another episode of Ad Watchers, NAD's podcast that gives a view into how our organization reviews claims and applies advertising law. Uh, if you missed any of our previous episodes, don't forget to check them out later. They're available wherever you're listening to this. Hi, Hal. Hi, Latoya. I'm really excited. Today we're talking about endorsements and testimonials, but we're also going to be talking about the broader category of just user-generated content and using that in advertising. Very timely topic, always at the top of mind for us. You know, going to sort of just the basics of endorsements and testimonials, I think the place we always look first is the FTC's endorsement guides. I mean, that's kind of, if they have a guide for something, we're going to look at it because it's really good guidance for us and for, for industry. The endorsement guides, along with a number of NAD decisions on the subject and the additional guidance from the FTC in their FAQs and their Disclosures 101 for influencers, all of that content together, I think, really covers the basics of how to use endorsements and testimonials in your advertising. Right. And when you look at those documents, there are just, you know, there are a few really basic guidelines that, you know, endorsements and testimonials should follow. You know, one, they should be the honest opinion of the endorser. They shouldn't be, you know, making something up about your product. It should be, you know, an honest opinion or belief. An advertiser should not make a claim that it could not otherwise make through an endorsement or a testimonial. You know, if you can't say it yourself in your advertising, you can't use a testimonial to say it either. Another basic principle is that you can only use expert endorsements that are relevant to the product being advertised. So, you know, if you are selling a health and wellness product and your expert is a zoologist, you know, those two things don't really kind of go together. Supplements for giraffes and elephants maybe, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's about (laughs) it. Um, And then finally, you know, a big one is to make sure you always properly disclose the material connections that might exist between the endorser and the advertiser. And, you know, those are kind of the very basic things that everybody who's using testimonials and endorsements in their advertising should know. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's like the endorsement guides part of it. And then if you're talking about how all of that works in the digital space, that's where FTC's other guidance really comes into play. They have a document called Disclosures 101 for social media influencers that I I mentioned before. And they have an FAQ that they, it's called like what people are asking. But basically, you know, the endorsement guides are not brand new. They've been around for a while. And so the FTC has kept up with sort of where endorsements and testimonials have gone with these other resources. And they're they're really useful as well. 
Right. And you would think that, you know, okay, this is an area that there is a lot of guidance. And so, you know, everything's really well settled, but it's not, you know, that's not the end of the story. Endorsements and testimonials, they're very persuasive claims and they require really close scrutiny to make sure that you're adhering to kind of the principles laid out in the FTC's guidance and and other areas. They're really impactful for consumers because consumers trust what other consumers have to say. You know, you always kind of want to hear what somebody else is, you know, what their experience with a product or service is before you try it yourself. It's kind of like word of mouth, you know, you, even if it's not your sister, just, you know, hearing like, oh, so-and-so's, you know, cousin tried that cereal and she loved it. Somehow that, you know, builds something in yourself where you think, oh, okay, well, somebody liked it. So, you know, and that's just, you know, the, to speaks to the persuasiveness. So, so it could be a stranger, but, you know, it, just the idea that it's something authentic that somebody has said, you know, that gives it some credibility. And so this credibility comes from, you know, there's no incentive, there's no payment, there's nothing that's putting a thumb on the scale. And so it's understandable that brands would want to leverage and amplify those voices. And that's why it's so, so important that they do that in a way that's truthful and not misleading. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes when I think of testimonials, I think of the old school testimonial, like, you know, a quote on a TV commercial or in a print ad that, you know, from Mary Q, who is, it's a quote from from some generic consumer. But in the current digital environment, I mean, there's millions of cousins, roommates, best friends out there giving recommendations to everyone about everything. And there becomes this sort of grayer area that's developed between what's a testimonial, you know, a testimonial being something that's being promoted by a brand, and what is just content that users are generating on the internet that an advertiser doesn't have any responsibility for. You know, if a consumer makes a comment on Twitter about a product, that's not true. If that was a testimonial that's like false, it would be that brand taking the tweet and taking the quote and cutting it out and sticking it on the on their own brand's Twitter feed, right? As like a graphic or something. But what if a brand retweets something? You know, we always hear retweets are not endorsements. Well, are they? And even what if the brand responds to the consumer? Are they responding? responsible for disabusing the world that's reading all of this of the incorrect information in that tweet? Are they endorsing the false claim by responding to it, even if it's just a thanks? Or, or, you know, and, and all of these sort of questions create this gray area about who owns the statement, who's responsible for what version of the statement. It's all just a lot less clear. Right. It's an evolution, I think, of kind of what the industry, you know, dealt with not too long ago with affiliate marketing and blogging, you know, kind of setting up the delineations of, you know, if if a blogger gets free product, who's responsible for that, you know, anything that they might say in their blog or, you know, 
if an affiliate fails to disclose their relationship with a brand or an advertiser, you know, where to draw that line. And then I think the industry, uh, you know, with the guidance from the FTC and the government in general has kind of figured out those lines and now moving into social media where everybody kind of has a little bit more personal control about, you know, what they put out there. Now this is kind of the natural next step, figuring out these lines um, about user-generated content versus testimonials versus endorsements. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird space to to be operating in for, for brands, for sure. But hopefully we can maybe provide a little bit of clarity in our conversation today about when you're responsible and what to do about it. Exactly. So when you look at the current legal landscape, there's kind of two extremes when it comes to user-generated content and kind of interacting with that as an advertiser. You know, on the one side, there's, you know, kind of what you touched on that advertisers are not responsible for just everything and anything that consumers say out there in the marketplace. You know, you don't have to scour the internet and correct what, you know, every internet troll with six followers is putting out on their like TikTok page, you know, there's no responsibility to like kind of go out, you know, after the bottom feeders who like probably nobody's listening to anyway in the first place. And then on the flip side, you have something like the Consumer Review Fairness Act, which protects consumers by making it illegal to prohibit honest reviews or to threaten legal action over them for, you know, those companies that are doing too much and are trying to actually stamp out, you know, kind of honest reviews about their product or service. So those are kind of the bookmarks on the ends of this area. But in the middle, you know, there's still many, many, many different ways that brands can interact with user-generated content that still triggers some responsibility for that content, whether it be because it needs to be substantiated or there's a material connection disclosure that's required or, you know, something else. So, you know, at NAD, we have some guidance for brands on that very subject. You know, we've been reviewing endorsements and testimonials for the full 50 years that we've been around. But when you're talking about this digital space and interacting with user-generated content, primarily consumer ratings and reviews, we have some guidance in our cases that can help brands not mislead consumers. And the first case that always comes to my mind is a case called Pile Audio. They do not make audio equipment, well, maybe they make audio equipment, but their product here was a vacuum sealed bag, which to me has nothing to do with audio equipment. And when they sent people the a package of these, these vacuum bags, vacuum sealed bags, they had a postcard in there. It said, love this, you know, in quotes, leave us a review on Amazon, claim a free gift on us. And then it also said that if you're not having a positive experience, you should contact customer service. And so there's sort of like two problems with this postcard advertisement here. One is they're encouraging incentivized reviews to go up on Amazon without any real controls as to whether or not consumers understand that there's free product involved, right? Latoya, you talked earlier about consumers trust reviews because there's not a thumb on the scale the same way that when a brand is talking about its own product, 
that there's obviously an incentive to say that it's good. When consumers say something's good, people read in that there's a lack of incentive to do so. And so they trust it more. If they're getting free product, consumers reading those reviews should know about it. And so telling people that they're going to get a free product if they put a review on Amazon without letting people reading those reviews know about it is a problem. But, but there's sort of a second problem here too, because by redirecting people that like the product to leave a review and directing people who didn't like the product to go to customer service, I mean, telling people to go to customer service that they're not happy isn't a problem. But if what you're doing is, is you're shaping the universe of reviews that you have on Amazon, you're creating a total image. You're, you're, you're shaping as the brand all of the reviews in aggregate. And you're telling consumers that you have maybe a four and a half star rating when without this incentivization, maybe you have a three and a half star rating. That bifurcation of incentivization, that's a lot of words, but splitting up the, your, your users into sort of two categories and then telling them to do different things is a way that you're impacting the user-generated content that consumers need to know about if it's happening. In this case, we told them, you know, discontinue it. Yeah, you know, and I think that's that's really key, you know, kind of manipulating or in some way influencing the ratings or, you know, what consumers see when it comes to rating is a very key issue that's come up in a few cases. The case that I think about is a case against a tax preparation software company called TaxLayer that was brought by its competitor Intuit, who makes a competing product, TurboTax. And so the claim that was at issue was that it was number one rated on Trustpilot, Trustpilot being an independent website that aggregates and lists consumer ratings for numerous products in, in numerous industries. And so the number one rated on Trustpilot was accompanied by a disclosure saying that the tax layer service had more than 2,000 and 2,300 verified reviews and that it had a certain, you know, number of five-star reviews and that consumers basically were saying, you know, great things about tax layer. The problem with that, you know, the thumb that was on the scale in that instance was that Trustpilot was in a business relationship with TaxLayer in which TaxLayer was paying for it to collect reviews from its consumers. And so it collect many, many, many more reviews from businesses that it had relationships with than businesses that it did not. And any consumer obviously could go to Trustpilot and leave a review, but it was skewing the amount and the representativeness of the reviews on the website. So, you know, kind of a big deal was that the market leader TurboTax only had 15 reviews on the Trustpilot website, while TaxLayer had, you know, again, around 2,500 at the time of the NAD review. So it creates issues of both reliability and representation, like our consumers that are hearing this claim and seeing this number one rated in tax layer advertising, are they getting a really, you know, true representative view of what consumers were saying about the product? And they 
you know, any day determined that they weren't because Taxlayer might be confident that its own reviews represent the opinions of its consumers because those reviews are being verified and collected in a, you know, reasonable manner by Trustpilot, but he couldn't say the same thing for the other companies. You know, anybody could leave a review. They might not have even used the other products. You know, who knows what motivations these people had for leaving those reviews. And there could have been duplicates. There were, you know, kind of other things that affected the overall picture. And without that verification to make sure that this was truly what consumers thought about the product in comparison to its competitors, you know, that was just not a reliable way to use consumer reviews in their advertising. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the thumb is on the scale in a different place in the process there. But it's still the same issue, right? When you're have all these reviews together. If you're saying you're number one, is that a reliable measure, right? Is that a reliable metric? And if there is incentivization or a system in place that doesn't make that happen, then yeah, then then that's that's a problem for sure. The next case I think of is sort of like, well, it's not always bad for brands, right? <laughs> Sometimes if brands, brands do the right thing. And, and we had a case with a company called APAC that made water purifiers. And they had been making a made in the USA claim They got in a little bit of discussions with the FTC about it. They changed all their advertising. But then their competitor came to them and said, you know, sure, you changed your advertising, but look at your reviews. You still have some customers on Amazon going in there and saying that they love how your product is made in the USA. Then the question comes, okay, well, what responsibility does APEC have about that, right? They're not saying anything. But if you go on Amazon, you might see this claim that is determined to be unsubstantiated. We found that APEC didn't actually have to modify those reviews, which by the way, they wouldn't necessarily be able to do, and it wouldn't have been necessarily a reliable metric. Part of the issue here is there wasn't a good, simple solution for APEC. That's one of the arguments they made to us, right? The challenger said they should just delist their product and lose all of their reviews and then have to relist it with zero reviews, which I'm sure would be very beneficial to the competitor. But basically, we analyzed how is APEC interacting with their reviews in general? And the truth was, is they didn't interact with these reviews that say made in the USA. And they barely interacted with their reviews at all. Mostly they'd respond to negative reviews with boilerplate language saying, why don't you contact customer service? And that's all, you know, on Amazon. And so to the extent that they had any sort of control over the global messaging here, they didn't really use it. So it's not like, there was some sort of implicit support for the unsubstantiated claim here. And we found that they were not responsible for these handful of misleading claims. They're not even claims, misleading statements, untrue statements in consumer reviews. APEC didn't take ownership over them. They did what they could to control their own language. They didn't implicitly take ownership of the consumer's language by how they interacted with their reviews. And we said they didn't have to do anything differently here. Maybe that's a a good tip where, you know, in a situation where there's a false claim on Amazon from a consumer, not even a claim, a false statement or an incorrect, unsubstantiated statement on an Amazon review, think about how you're interacting with your reviews in general. And maybe that will, I should save that for tips and takeaways at the end. (laughs) <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so everybody gets a freebie now. So that's sort of uh, a way to where you're interacting with the reviews in a way that's not deceiving to consumers. 
Exactly. Because, you know, the point is not that you can, you can never do it. It's just that you have to do it in a way that doesn't mess with the authenticity of what's coming across. I was thinking about cases to discuss, and and I thought about this one case involving these Dimensions fragrance products, because it was a really good example of how even when you're in an area that you, you know, think you've done everything according to the tried and true guidance provided by the FTC, you know, there's still novel issues that can come up. And this had to do with a, and it was frankly a small part of this case, a claim that uh, the product had 4.4 out of five stars. And it was an aggregate of all of the reviews that the advertiser had gotten on their website. So basically, there had been a promotion and there were written testimonials. And with every testimonial, you know, the the user also gave a star review. And so in the written part of the testimonial, they did everything, you know, according to the FTC's guidelines and did disclose that they had received free product in and, and you know, kind of leaving this review pursuant to that. Not all of the reviews had been involved in the promotion, but a substantial number of them. And so, you know, it was all there, it was written and it was disclosed. The problem is that the 4.4 out of five stars appeared not just kind of on the page with the consumer reviews, but other places on the advertiser's website without the written reviews. And so the issue was that that 4.4 out of five was still based on in part compensated reviews. And if you divorce it from, you know, the page where all of the disclosures made in the written testimonials, um, appear, then now, you know, consumers are seeing that 4.4 and they don't know that they're at least in part influenced by the fact that there is a material connection between some of the people that contributed to that 4.4. And so consumers needed to be made aware of that connection between the advertiser and the reviewers. And so the the advertiser, I think, you know, they, they thought they had it all buttoned up because they did, you know, kind of make sure that that disclosure was made in their written testimonials, but hadn't thought about when you separate out that rating claim and you put it somewhere else, you know, now things are a little bit different. Yeah. And that, honestly, it's funny because sometimes it sounds so small, right? Like, oh, 4.4 as opposed to 4. That 4.2 or whatever, that makes a huge difference for companies sometimes. I mean, we hear yeah. arguments all the time about how a small difference in your in your star rating can have a big impact on your business. So 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 these influences matter. These small yeah. in the, these seemingly small influences and incentive structures impact the messaging and the bottom line. And and it's important. So Latoya, I think maybe also helpful would be a little hypothetical, going back to law school and doing a hypothetical examination here. Let's say you're the CEO and president of Sutton's Cogs and Widgets, and you make cogs and widgets, and you sell them on your website and, and in stores, and you have consumer reviews on your website. 
when do you have to start thinking about what consumers are putting in there, right? In the content of those reviews and maybe even having to substantiate something that they say, uh, that your cogs and widgets increase their productivity 100% or something like that. So right off the bat, you just leave those reviews there. You don't interact with them. It's pretty clear you're not responsible for the content of those reviews, even though they're on your website. Right. I think, you know, just having a spot for consumers to to leave reviews, I, I don't think that's enough to make the advertiser responsible for the content that's there, particularly if they're not, you know, curating them in any way. However, if in my, you know, wiseness as the leader of this company, if I decide to start, you know, pulling a review here and there and, and highlighting it, maybe, you know, kind of putting it under the guise of the, you know, featured review of the month or something, then I would, you know, be responsible for the content because now there's a, uh, you know, implication that the company is supporting whatever message is in that content, whatever statements are being made, that the company is is behind that. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty clear. Like that's now your ad, right? I think, I think that's, that's right up there in the FTC guidance. I think, I think that's pretty clear. So, but you know, this is your website, Latoya. This is your website. And you don't want some random person out there in cyberspace to go out and say that your products don't work on your website, even though you know they work. So let's say someone came out there and said, these are the worst cogs and widgets. They broke the minute I put them on my machines. They were made out of cheap materials. They weren't the right size that they said they were. And you're like, I'm not having it on my website. This is, this is my advertising. <laughs> you, you pull that one right out. What about then? Well, yeah. So now, now there's some, you know, interaction going on. There's, you're, you're definitely going to go into the territory of being responsible for the content. It goes back to those cases that we were just talking about with aggregation and uh, reviews and, and putting a thumb on the scale, you know, because now what is being portrayed isn't everybody. It's not representative of the entire body of consumers that are using the product, it's only the positive. And so that's definitely going to get tricky very quickly. Whenever you're selectively interacting with your reviews, it raises questions about, you know, does this mean that you're approving the content of all the reviews that you leave? Are you, you know, hiding something from consumers that they should know about your product? When you start interacting and removing some, but not removing others, you know, it kind of makes it seem like maybe there's something going on here and your responsibility is going to change accordingly. Yeah. I mean, I think if you pulled reviews that, let's say, were expletive laden or you had some sort of policy that wasn't content based regarding the claims, maybe that would be a different story, right? Like maybe you'd be fine pulling out expletive laden or, or offensive content and having some sort of management on, on that level. But if you're trying to shape the, the global message from all these reviews, then that's your global message. That's yours. You own it, right? You know, I think this gets grayer when we move off of suttonscogsandwidgets.com and go to at suttonscogsandwidgets on Twitter or Facebook or, I don't know, whatever the next great social media platform <laughs> is. So brands are 
constantly thinking of new ways to engage with consumers, right? Like even the influencer guidance and the micro-influencer guidance from the follow-up documents put out by the FTC, I mean, it's gone even beyond that to some extent, I think. And, and in reverse too, right? Like it's not just the way that brands are engaging with consumers, it's the way that consumers are engaging with brands. And it's creating this two-way flow of information. And it's very hard to track who's responsible for what. So it, it creates a whole new set of potential influences and connections that may or may not be material influences and connections on the content. And those material connections might require disclosure. Right. Yeah. You know, with the evolution of social media, there's just, you know, always some new app to be used. And what you were saying about the flowing in multiple directions is really important because, you know, you have a whole industry of people who are the whole point is that they're making up content and they're making up how this content is used. You know, it's not, it's a, it's a really interesting space because it's not the brands kind of pushing the innovation. It's just, you know, average people who are like looking to make a splash and they're looking to like get attention that they're the ones, you know, kind of creating the ways and interactions, you know, that's really, I think what happened with TikTok, you know, which again, started out as a social media platform that, you know, wasn't being primarily used for advertising is still not being used primarily for advertising, but influencers were able to show brands, I think how, they could, this could be a lucrative relationship. And that kind of brought advertisers into looking at TikTok content and how they can monetize that and how they could use that to build brand awareness. So it's an evolution. There's no clear answer for, you know, some of these interactions, you know, it's always good to, to start with your well-established precedent and standards and, you know, look at what the FTC has done and figure out how to try to apply it to this new environment. But, you know, it's new technology, new applications. There's just always going to be some, you know, like a learning curve of how do we fulfill kind of the point and the principles behind these rules and protect consumers while moving forward, you know, into whatever comes next when it comes to social media. It's not about stifling innovation in advertising or, you know, in marketing tactics. You know, we want to see like these new and interesting ways to engage with consumers. It's really just about ensuring that consumers are able to attribute credibility to a statement based on their full assessment of the influences at play, that they're not relying on credibility that has been degraded or just isn't really there. Well said. I agree. A hundred percent. It's like we're colleagues or something. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to some tips and takeaways for the listening audience. You already gave a freebie earlier, Hal, but what else, what else do you have up your sleeve? I think one thing is to have a social media policy and a policy for interacting with reviews that takes into consideration the possibility that some of those interactions that you have with consumers and influencers or whoever on social media or on consumer review sites, or even on your own website, 
that those might trigger a responsibility for statements. Have that built into your policy and have a standard in place for when you interact or, or respond to certain reviews or, or comments on social media that takes that into consideration. Another thing is just like disclose, disclose, disclose. Like if there is a connection, any connection that might affect the credibility of whatever's being said out there, of your relationship with that speaker, whether it be a consumer, an influencer, a reviewer online, even a little bit can put a thumb on the scale. And so it's better to err on the side of disclosing that there is something here and letting consumers know it and understand and assess for themselves whether or not to rely on that user-generated content. It goes to what you were saying before about in the ever-changing marketplace, right? Like the key is making sure that consumers know what influences might be out there when they're taking in content. Right. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I'd add to that is that advertisers should think about, you know, especially when they're using influencers that are, are paid influencers. Something that we hear a lot is that, you know, they want their influencers to be their authentic selves. You know, they want, they don't want heavily scripted things. They don't want to, you know, tell them what they can or cannot say or, you know, how they disclose their material connection because, you know, that would kind of mess up the authenticity. But you have to kind of balance that need to let your influencers be their authentic selves with your responsibility not to sponsor false or misleading messages about your products or not to fail to disclose, you know, appropriate uh, material connection. So, you know, it's not great to have, you know, authentic content that is misleading to consumers that's going to get you into trouble. So as much as you might want, you know, whoever is talking about your product to say, you know, their truthful and honest opinion, if they're doing it in a way that is causing you to sponsor, you know, something misleading, that's a problem. Your brand's authentic self should be truthful, accurate, not misleading, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to say out there to everyone in the audience, thank you again for tuning into this episode of the Ad Watchers. Hopefully you've learned something about how to interact with user-generated content, consumer reviews and ratings, and to use endorsements and testimonials in your advertising. Yeah, I really hope our listeners like this episode. Hal, can you even believe it that our first season is almost over? Almost. Not quite yet. Almost over. Yes. I'm just having so much fun. But, you know, listeners, don't worry. We still have a couple more exciting episodes in store. So definitely keep tuning in each month. And as always, if anything in this episode or any of our previous episodes have sparked your interest, you can head over to our website, bbbprograms.org to learn more about what we do at the National Advertising Division or any of our other self-regulatory programs. So, bye, Hal. Bye, Latoya. Bye.